Good morning. I bring you greetings from the south side of Chicago, which is the better part of Chicago, for baseball. You can get upset all you want, that's just the way it is. Uh, I also bring you greetings from Orland Park CRC, where I was just last week. Uh, everybody is always shocked. They're like, why do you hang out with Dutch people so much? I just keep saying, well, because I keep hoping that maybe I'll get taller. It's not working yet. But it is a joy to be here. I've been praying for you as uh, Pastor Derek, who is one of my best friends, has been sharing just about what you all have been through and are going through now and know that as um, the coming months will hopefully bear fruit as Orland Park, CRC, and you all partner together. I know that we are praying for you, and um, I look forward to seeing what the Lord does. We'll be in the book of 1 Corinthians this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 to 31. But before we begin, let me pray. May the book live to us, O Lord. Show us ourselves within your word. Show us who you really are. And make the book live to us. Amen. In 1936, Germany hosted the Olympic Summer Games. Hitler was ecstatic, desiring to host the most impressive games imaginable. Why was he so excited? Well, he thought that the Olympics were the ideal platform to demonstrate Aryan superiority in the world. Why did he want this so badly? Well, very simply put, he despised all other kinds of people. Now, while incredibly twisted and wrong, it might come as a surprise to you if you're not familiar with the book of 1 Corinthians that the Corinthians were acting much the same. They were seeking to demonstrate their own superiority, despising other kinds of people, outside and inside the church. In this letter, Paul is continually going after the fact that the Corinthians were at each other's throats over, among other things, who had the better spiritual gifts, who followed the better leader, and how accepting one could be. There was war inside the church and a desire to seek approval from those outside the church seeking approval of the very kinds of people who despised the religion they believed. It had gotten so bad. You know your church is bad. When somebody writes a letter to the church planter saying, hey, we've got a problem. <laughs> Could you help out? We learned that it's Chloe and her people in chapter 1, verse 11, who had written to Paul saying, man, you've got to do something. We have got all kinds of issues at this church. In the section before us this morning, we learn 
that Christians are usually not the cream of the crop. And that that's perfectly all right. Let me read it in your hearing. The book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 1, beginning of verse 26 and reading through verse 31. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is lowly and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. I want to title the sermon this morning, Good News for Losers. I think before us this morning, we see Paul explaining three things. Number one, who God chooses. Number two, why he chooses them. And number three, the results of being chosen. And I'll give it to you right at the beginning. Here's what I want to persuade you of from this passage. I think it's the same thing that Paul is trying to persuade his audience of. It's that God chooses losers to show that he's Lord. That's it. That God chooses losers to show that he is Lord. I don't know how that strikes you this morning, but let me just tell you, that ought to be the most comforting and the most exciting news you have ever heard. Who does God choose? Paul tells us in verse 26. Paul has just finished proclaiming to the Corinthians that glorious irony of a crucified king, something people could and would think was laughable. This isn't just a modern 21st century American phenomenon. No, even in the culture in which the Corinthians lived, it would have been shameful or a joke to anybody who would have heard that the hero of Christianity wins by dying. That's not the way these things happen. It all proves something. We see it in verse 25. The foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. That's what the cross demonstrates. <laughs> and then... It's as if Paul goes, now in case you needed an example a little closer to home, just look around. Do you want to know that the wisdom of God is wiser than men and that it says here that the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men? Then he goes, for consider your calling, brothers. In other words, just turn to your neighbor and look at them as I'm writing this letter doesn't exactly seem like the kindest thing in the world to do. You've got to remember, this is a church that Paul planted. You would think that he would be all kinds of like, but you guys are great! We're so amazing! Paul goes, no, let's just get things straight right from the beginning. The gospel is good news for losers. Paul's already said, you have fellowship in Christ. 
That's in verse 2. Now he's just pointing out that they aren't all that special. I don't know about you, but that's incredibly good news to me. Why? Because there will always be people who have more power and more prestige and more promise than I do. Same probably goes for you. The same probably goes for this church. The church is, according to Paul, the church at Corinth, but I think this applies everywhere, the church is the gathering of the not many. Notice what he says. Verse 26, Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. The church is the gathering of the not many. Now, this is important in at least two different ways. First, if the church is the gathering of the not many, then every church, including this church, just might be exactly the way that God wants it to be. Don't get me wrong, the church should always be growing, both in depth and in breadth, but so many churches are either enslaved to their future and what they will one day become, or enslaved to the past, what they used to be. And in both of those cases, you do injustice to the idea that God might have this church exactly where He wants them to be. Here's the reality. Either this church and every church is Christ's bride and made up of who he wants to be here or not. You choose. There are times in the life of a church where that becomes very easy to accept and everybody says, Amen, even in a Christian Reformed church. And there's other times where it becomes very difficult to believe. But either it is true or it's not true across the board. The second reason this is important for us is because a church of the not many means that some of the best and the brightest are included in the mix. Why is that important? Well, because it means that the church excludes nobody on the basis of who they happen to be. Sure, the church is the congregation of the mostly not many, but that means that there are some amongst us, possibly, who have completely made it in the world, and we go, congratulations, welcome to church, sit right there, you're like the rest of us. P.S., you're hanging out with the congregation of the not many, so the joke's on you. I don't know if you're a Christian or not this morning, but know this, the church is a place for all of us. That's why it's good news. It excludes no one. It's a place for the best and for the rest. My prayer for you as a church is not unique. It's the same prayer I have for every church. It's that it would be a place of the not many and of the few as well. That all who walk through these doors, through the kind providence of God, would find a place here. 
But that what you would revel in is not the fact that you have a couple people here who might have made it in the eyes of the world, but that most of the people here don't make much sense. Why does God choose these kinds of people? Let me be honest with you. It doesn't seem like the wisest move for the God of the universe to display his own glory to the world by choosing a community of the not many. Why does he choose them? Well, we don't have to guess. Paul will actually tell us in verses 27 to 29. You ever wonder... You don't admit this, we don't have to have a show of hands, but do you ever wonder when you're getting ready to come to church and you're thinking about who you're going to be sitting next to at church and you go like, (laughs) why do I go to church with these people? Just know this, there's other people who say the same thing about you so you can just settle down. Right? You don't have to point at the person like, that's who I was thinking about today. Every church is like that. Those outside the church ought to marvel at the makeup of this congregation. It ought not make any sense. Believers ought to be asking the question, if God is the God of the entire universe, then why did he bring these people together? And the answer is in verse 29. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. (laughs) In other words, God does what he does in order to have everybody look at you and just scratch their heads. Interestingly enough, Paul goes right back through his order that he laid out in 26 to show that God chooses exactly the wrong kinds of people, the kinds of people we wouldn't expect. What is foolish in the world? What is weak in the world? What is low and despised in the world? That's who God chooses. What does this selection of losers accomplish? Well, as Paul tells us twice, it shames and... Number two, it brings to nothing the things that are. That idea of shaming and bringing to nothing are often used in the Bible in reference to what God does to his enemies. He shames them and he brings them to nothing. Here's the implication. God's selection of losers is a demonstration that he triumphs over the world and what the world counts as important. That's why he does what he does. You see, God doesn't choose the losers because he feels bad for them. He doesn't do it because he's just a really nice kind of God. No, he does it as a demonstration of his power and authority over the whole world, which means that if your church makes complete sense in the eyes of the world, then God doesn't get that much glory. Everybody goes, well, of course. The scandalous nature of the church is when everybody goes, I don't know about this, and God goes, right? Look how great I am. Let me make this very practical. If you are ever able to boast as a congregation about the status, the salary, or the situation of your church members, and therefore brag to fellow believers or unbelievers, 
well, then this church is probably doing something wrong. According to Paul. The church always has a scandalous nature. Sure, there are some who might have made it who find their way in here, but the scandal of them is that they have decided to become a part of the rest of us losers. Don't ever be ashamed of your church. I'm not saying you are. I hope you take great pride in this place. I don't know any of you, but I am telling you, it is so easy to be ashamed of any church you're ever a part of. No church is ideal. Every other church except your church looks greater than you. Just know that the metrics that you're using to measure are wrong. You are God's. He chose you to demonstrate something to the world. If He's not ashamed of you, you shouldn't be ashamed of you. We've seen who God chooses. We've seen the scandalous nature of why He chooses them. Look at the results of being chosen in verses 30 and 31. Here is the amazing grace of God. In choosing people like us, people who have nothing in the eyes of the world, He gives us everything in Jesus. Notice verse 30. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Hey friends, what else do you want in the world? Because if that's not enough for you, nothing ever will be. But the good news is that's what you have as a result of being in Christ. It's already done. You might be weak, you might be poor, you might be foolish, but here's the reality. While we might not have much in ourselves, we have everything in Him. The way Paul's explaining it is it's like saying, listen, we were all orphans, abandoned on the street, and somehow we were plucked off the street. We were placed on a throne next to the king, given an eternal share of his riches, feasting at his table, partaking of his royalty. And you ask, how could that ever be? How is it that we get all this stuff? And Paul goes, well, it comes in Christ. And you go, well, how did that happen? And Paul goes, well, I mean, I just told you a minute ago. It happened by Christ conquering on the cross. You see, the king who has given you everything has given you everything by doing the one thing that makes no sense in the world, crucifying his own son. This is what's really interesting. As backwards and upside down and as seemingly foolish as it is, to choose people like us to demonstrate His glory, it's nothing in comparison to the way He secured that in the first place. God made sure that people like us get everything by hanging His Son on a cross. The next time you doubt whether or not this church 
this pack of losers, which is just like every other pack of losers in the world, if this church is actually who God, in his wisdom, wants to be here, just look at that thing up there. This will never make sense. The cross makes way less sense. This is an argument from the greater to the lesser. If the cross made sense in some way I don't understand, then it's much less harder to believe that he could pick people like you and me. We sing songs about that cross. We did this morning. About how glorious it is, how wonderful it is, all the benefits we have from it. Just know that derivatively, that's ridiculous more ridiculous than anything that could ever happen here. So if that makes sense, somehow in God's plan of redemption, then so does this. The Gospel of Mark masterfully lays this out in rich irony in the chapter, the 15th chapter. Six times in that chapter, Jesus is referenced as king. Every single time, that Jesus is referenced as king in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15. It is done in irony. Pilate, who judged him, the soldiers who beat him, the sign that marked him, and the religious leaders that mocked him, all spoke truthfully when what they thought they were doing was just highlighting a lie. Yes, indeed, Jesus is king, and he displayed that fully as he hung on his only earthly throne, which was a cross. This is the upside-down nature of the gospel, friends. Of course a king who rules like that would choose people like us. Our lowly status serves to magnify his might. This should all kill any boasting about ourselves. I don't know who chose the songs for this morning, but they did a good job. I will not boast in anything. You ever wonder if like, you actually believe the songs that you sing? <laughs> We're all just kind of singing it. And you ever, I, I've caught myself this before. This is the way songs are supposed to work. Where you get halfway through the line and you go, I don't believe that. Or you go home and you're kind of singing it on the way home from church. Right? You just kind of shoved your kids in the car and you'd be like, be quiet. And then you're trying to act all holy. It's like, don't cry until we get out of the parking lot from church. And then you just start to sing the song. You know, I will not boast in anything. You're like, oh, I'm, I was just telling everybody about my raise and how great it was. There's, there's great benefit in giving thanks to God because you got a raise. But did, is that the reason why you talked about it? Or did you do it because you were trying to say, like, I'm pretty great? Hope God's been good to you. He's been good to me. But you know, it's mainly because I'm pretty great. I will not boast in anything. That's ripped off. You know, good songwriters just steal from the Bible. That's what they were doing here. Paul here in verse 30, when he's talking about the end of boasting, is drawing upon Jeremiah chapter 9. In Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 23 through 24, he says this, Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. 
I wonder if those categories sound familiar to you. Wise, mighty, rich, they're exactly the same categories that Paul uses in this chapter. Jeremiah is in the middle of a series of oracles proclaiming doom and shame on all who boast in themselves, which is exactly what the Corinthians are doing. And what you and I are so tempted to do. Paul here is laying down a not-so-subtle warning to any who would long for worldly greatness. He's saying this, God has provided everything in Jesus. He has chosen you because you're not really great. And if you begin trying to boast in who you are and what you've accomplished in the world, just know this, the people in Jeremiah's day did that and it didn't end up well for them. Do you really think it's going to turn out any better for you? nineteen thirty six the Olympic summer games were hosted in Berlin. Hitler was present for much of it, being a great fan of sports, and while the German government had tried to keep the noise down, it was starting to leak out. What was starting to leak out is that Hitler really, really despised Jews and other kinds of people. One of those people, kinds of people, that he really couldn't stand was black people. Why? Because of the Aryan superiority. But Hitler had a problem. Because a certain African-American born on the south side of Chicago named Jesse Owens showed up to the 1936 Summer Games. And in track and field, Jesse Owens, over the course of just a few weeks, obliterated any notion of Aryan superiority winning four gold medals. Owens was not just a fantastic athlete, he was a living example that defied Hitler's worldly standards. Owens put Nazism to shame. What many people don't know about Owens is that he returned to a segregated America where almost no one had any idea what he did and nobody cared. Owens did not even get invited to the White House to shake President Roosevelt's hand. Owens was despised in the eyes of the world, yet absolutely victorious. Friends, some of us might win things like gold medals in life, but not many. Regardless, most of us will ultimately be respected by no one, and when we die, very few people will ever remember our names. But who needs gold medals when we are promised a crown of glory? From the best to the rest, all who find themselves in Christ will be crowned in royalty. Thank God that he chooses losers like us to show that he is Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your ways in the world. As we also confess that they often don't make very much sense. 
there are times in which we find it easy to rest at you and your good plan for the world, but we admit that often we look around at the congregations you've placed us in, we look like nothing but a pack of losers. Help us to trust this morning, once again, or maybe for the first time, that you know what you're doing in the world. And when we doubt and when we question whether or not you know what you're doing, we pray that you would remind us of the cross of Jesus Christ and that in that cross we have everything we could ever need. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.